Something to note, all myths have many versions and variations. We've selected those we felt are the most dramatic and entertaining and supplemented them with additional research into Sumerian traditions. Because mythology comes from oral tradition, there's a wide variety across sources. Our myths may not always be the version you're familiar with, but we hope you'll enjoy them. The water was lukewarm. Gilgamesh, king of Uruk, had to call for more. Looking at his dirt and blood-specked arms, he wondered if there was any water hot enough to scrub him clean of the filth. Gilgamesh and his sworn brother Enkidu had spent weeks traversing the land outside Uruk, all the way to the forest of Cedar, where the dreaded giant Humbaba lived. They had fought an epic battle and, by the grace of the gods, survived. Their trophy, the severed head of Humbaba, hung over the gate of Uruk, a testament to the world that there were none mightier than Gilgamesh, for he had the will and strength of the gods on his side. Now it was time to clean. The great warrior scrubbed himself pink until the last traces of forest grime and giant's blood were gone. He donned his finest robes and spent hours polishing, shining, and honing his many blades. Finally, Gilgamesh set a crown upon his head and appeared before his people, his first appearance as king since he had returned. Gilgamesh was home. His people were safe, and no enemy still lived that could challenge him. Or so he thought. Welcome to Mythology on the Parcast Network. Every Tuesday, we present dramatic stories from ancient mythology and explore their origins. I'm your host and narrator, Vanessa Richardson. Today is our second episode about the Epic of Gilgamesh, the story of the demigod king of the city-state Uruk. We'll be working off of the Andrew George translation, published in 1999. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram, at ParCast, and Twitter, at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. Have you ever spotted McDonald's hot, crispy fries right as they're being scooped into the carton? And time just stands still. Hey, welcome to Ikea, where even this desk is circular. Huh, how so? Looks pretty rectangular to me. It's because we're always looking to repair, reuse, and we love our products, like buying back your Ikea items for store credit, or shop our as-is section for great deals. You can even order free spare parts. Get on the circular path for a more sustainable future. Still a rectangle. Get started at ikea-usa.com slash circular. Visit ikea-usa.com slash circular for as-is information and buyback and resale terms and conditions. Spare parts not available for all products.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In our last episode, we covered the first half of the epic of Gilgamesh, the ancient Sumerian myth believed to be the oldest surviving work of great literature. We met Gilgamesh, the demigod king of Uruk, and his sworn brother, the wild Enkidu. Together, they set out on a journey to kill the giant Humbaba, a challenge that befitted the men's great strength. The fight was perilous. But Gilgamesh and Enkidu emerged victorious, with some help from the gods. In this episode, we'll cover the remaining tablets of the epic of Gilgamesh, including Gilgamesh's feud with the goddess Ishtar and Enkidu's terrifying premonitions of his own death. We'll also conclude with a look at how the story has been carried through history and has impacted popular culture to this day. What is that? Who's there? How dare you break into the room of Gilgamesh, king of Uruk? Surely you know me, Gilgamesh. I am Ishtar, goddess of love. I saw you from afar, so beautifully adorned in silk robes. Surely, there is not a man alive more handsome than you. What do you want? I want you as my husband. Come with me and I shall build you a mansion of cedar, filled with riches and surrounded by the largest flock in the land. I will grant you many sons, and together we will preserve the legacy of your bloodline. Ishtar cast aside her robe, bearing herself to Gilgamesh. She knew he could never resist her. <laughs> or maybe he could. I have nothing to gain from such a union. I am a king. And I want for nothing among the earthly pleasures. Do you not find me beautiful? I am no fool. Your beauty has been maintained since the creation of all existence. It will persist long after I am dust. In contrast, my body will go old and fat, and you will surely tire of me. I would never! We're your husbands, love goddess. Hmm? All manner of man and beast you have lain with. And yet where are they now? Where is the shepherd whom you turned into a wolf for the simple crime of loving you? The lion whose death you orchestrated in the pits? Where is Ishalanu, who rejected your advances and thus was made into a dwarf? I could go on. This time will be different. Doubtful. Loving you is a deadly affair, it seems. We have nothing to offer one another. Ishtar flew from Gilgamesh's palace, distraught and enraged that she could not take him as her own. She would not let this go, and went to her father, the god Anu. Father! I demand you release to me the Bull of Heaven! I shall unleash it upon Gilgamesh and all his people. It will make Uruk a wasteland with dried-up rivers and barren soil, so that none may journey there again! I shall do no such thing! 
The bowl of heaven seeds chaos and destruction wherever it goes. I will not have you use it to resolve your petty squabbles. Petty squabbles? Gilgamesh defied me to my face! I am older and wiser than you, daughter. Never forget that. I watched your attempted seduction, and I heard what Gilgamesh said. He told no lie. Your past lovers all met death and despair for the crime of loving you. I see no fault in him for denying you. Give me the bull, or I shall destroy the underworld itself. The dead will have nowhere to go but to the realm of the living, and all of the world will become an undead nightmare! You do not understand the destructive power you request. The bull is a plague, an earthquake, and a typhoon all at once. If it is released, it will wreak destruction so severe that the people of Uruk will face seven years of famine. Exactly! This is the fate I want for Uruk, as a penance for Gilgamesh's actions. I might give you the bull, but I will not allow you to bring suffering and starvation upon innocent people. You may have the bull only after the people of Uruk have gathered seven years' worth of provisions, so that they may live comfortably during the famine. Oh, don't worry. The citizens of Uruk are wise, and they already have more than enough in their stores to last seven years. This was a lie. Ishtar knew that the people of Uruk could not be prepared for such a famine, but her words successfully deceived Anu, and he consented to release the bull. The ground shook as a crack opened in the sky. The stars that made the bull's constellation banded together and formed a monstrous beast of flesh and blood, which then fell from the sky to Uruk. A hundred armed men advanced on the beast, each of them fell to the bull, crushed under his hooves or gored by his horns. A hundred more men advanced, but the bull bucked and opened a great schism in the ground, and the men were swallowed by the earth. It was then that Enkidu arrived and took his turn to rush at the beast. He grabbed the bull by the horns and wrestled, lasting only a few seconds before the beast spat at him with enough force to send him flying. Gilgamesh! I cannot do this alone! I am here, brother! The two sworn brothers worked in tandem, as they had when they slew the giant Humbaba. Enkidu got behind the bull and grabbed its tail, holding fast. He wrapped his other arm around the bull's hind legs, pinning it to the ground. Now! Gilgamesh ducked below the deadly point of the bull's horns. He grabbed the beast's chest and lifted it up, exposing its vulnerable throat. Gilgamesh drew his knife and stabbed the bull in the throat. The heroes had slain the bull of heaven. Come around, all! The beast is dangerous no longer. See the majesty of the bull. See the god's design in every fiber of its being. This was a worthy foe indeed. We shall cut out its heart and offer sacrifice to the god Shamash, to whom we owe so much. Ishtar climbed the walls of Uruk to hurl her curses at Gilgamesh. Curse you, Gilgamesh! And you, Enkidu! May you be stricken blind and have your... Enkidu was not keen on hearing Ishtar's curses, 
With his mighty hands, he ripped the haunch from the bull's carcass and hurled it at Ishtar. You dare disrespect the bull of heaven, the prized beast of my father, Anu! (laughs) Yes, and if you come any closer, I'll throw you next! Ishtar had no response. She called together the courtesans of the city who were obligated to listen to their patron deity. Together, Ishtar and her followers mourned the fallen bull. As the legend goes, the bull was honored in death by the gods with a permanent place in the sky where it could roam free and never again fall victim to the schemes of God or man. Today, the bull of heaven is identified as the constellation Taurus, which is noticeably missing one of its hind legs. While the bull's fight was over, Gilgamesh's story continued. Gilgamesh and Enkidu traveled to the river Euphrates, where they washed off the blood and gore of the bull. When they returned, they rode chariots throughout the city, celebrating their latest victory late into the night. Finally, Gilgamesh and Enkidu returned to their beds and fell fast asleep. But Enkidu could not rest. He woke up in cold sweat. Confused and panicked, he had seen a premonition of his own death. At IKEA, your dream home is a blue bag away. No matter the size of your space or budget, we've got everything you need to turn your dreams into reality. And now with new lower prices on hundreds of our most popular products, bringing the dream home is even easier. Like the gray Strandom wing chair, was $369, now $299 and the IKEA Plus 365 9-piece cookware set was $129.99, now $89.99, and hundreds more. Shop new lower prices at ikea-usa.com today. Sergeant and Mr. Smith, you're gonna love this house. Bunk beds in a closet? There's no field manual for finding the right home, but when you do, USAA Homeowners Insurance can help protect it the right way. Restrictions apply. Now back to the story. In the days following Gilgamesh and Enkidu's victory against Ishtar and the Bull of Heaven, Enkidu found himself plagued with dreams of his own demise. One night, he shared these dreams with Gilgamesh. What troubles you, brother? A dream as discouraging as it is terrifying. Do you not remember my dreams of failure on our quest to kill Humbaba? Leave dreams where they lay. This was different. In his dream, Enkidu was surrounded by the gods holding counsel to decide his fate. The god Anu, father of slighted Ishtar, spoke first. Enkidu and his sworn brother Gilgamesh have defied the gods by their actions. They slew Humbaba, the guardian of the forest appointed by us, the gods. They slew the sacred bull of heaven. For these transgressions, One of them must die. Gilgamesh and Enkidu have been blessed with divine destiny. All their great deeds have been guided, for I would see their names written on the stars. You would side with mortal men against your own kind. You have been more a comrade to them than you ever were to us. Be still, your tongue. These two are still but mortal men, and both will die at some point. I only wish to see them achieve their full potential before they pass. Congratulations, Shamash. 
One of them has reached that potential. Choose. And thus, Shamash made the choice. Enkidu had then awoken, and at that, knew he was destined to die. The gods will not kill you, Gilgamesh. So mighty and worthy of greatness are you. But one of us must die, and it will be me. My friend, you worry too much. I don't believe the gods will turn their back on us now. Come, try to sleep. But Gilgamesh was wrong. Within the fortnight, Enkidu grew gravely ill. Gilgamesh went before the gods to plead for his brother's life, but to no avail. The days dragged on, with Enkidu becoming weaker and weaker, wasting away until... Come, you must eat. You have to preserve your strength. There is nothing of me worth preserving, but I've had another dream. I was approached by a man with a lion's head and the talons of a great eagle. I called out to you to aid me, but you were so afraid you could not move. We fought, but weak as I am, he overpowered me. With a word, he turned me into a bird, and then, as his captive, I was taken to the netherworld. They deposited me at the House of Dust, and there I had to stand before Arishkagal, queen of the underworld who knows the fates of all men, and she told me of my tragedy. Oh, Gilgamesh, had I only died in battle, I would be celebrated as a great warrior. Instead, I am resigned to this, slowly devolving into nothingness. Men will tell tales of my deeds, but my story shall always conclude in this pathetic manner. You will live on in legend. I do not wish to live on in legend. I wish to live on as a flesh and blood man, immune to the scourge of death. I wish to be undying. No man has learned the secret of immortality. Not true, brother. Surely you know the tale of Utanapishti, the man who survived the Great Flood. He became immortal by the grace of the gods, and all mankind is descended from him. If we could find this man... No, I am a lost cause. I was forged by the gods themselves, and thus Utanapishti's blood does not run through my veins. But you... If you could find him. Gilgamesh put the legend of Utanapishti out of his head. He would not leave his brother. Enkidu suffered for 12 more days, falling more and more into delirium and disease until finally. <laughs> Enkidu died. Gilgamesh mourned Enkidu for days, not leaving his side, even after Enkidu's body had grown cold from death. My brother, may your soul return to the wilds that birthed you. May all manner of creature and beast express their sadness at the news of your passing. And may the spirits of all animals join you in a never-ending hunt. Oh... I weep for you, my friend, Enkidu. 
As Gilgamesh refused to leave Enkidu's side, word of his death spread throughout Uruk. The people praised Enkidu's name and spoke of his great deeds. They sent tributes of jewels, gold, weapons, and armor to the palace for Enkidu's adornment, so that he may travel comfortably through the afterlife. All the while, the city elders wondered when Gilgamesh would appear in public again. My king, we all mourn for Enkidu, but there are matters of the city to tend to. You cannot stay in this room forever. It's like half my soul has departed my body. What is the point of Gilgamesh without Enkidu? He would not want you to waste your life in his name. Please, let the priests take the body so that we may give him a burial befitting a hero. Get away! His body stays with me and that is final! My lord, I don't know how to say this, but there are maggots in his face. And so there were, for Gilgamesh had held Enkidu's corpse for so long that the body began to rot. And finally, at that realization... Gilgamesh was broken. Enkidu was right. All these trappings of manliness, and for what? He should have died in battle, like the great warrior he was. What can be said of me? Will I suffer the same fate? Oh, curse this armor and these weapons! I have no more need of them. Gilgamesh ripped off his armor, his weapons, his clothes, even his hair and cast them every which way. He was no longer Gilgamesh the king. He would be a nomad, wandering aimlessly in mourning of his lost brother. He clad himself in animal furs, mimicking the look that Enkidu had when he was just a wild man in the jungle all that time ago. And in grief, Gilgamesh left the city of Uruk behind. Gilgamesh roamed the wilds for many days and nights, grieving Enkidu, wondering when his own death would come. He would speak to himself aloud. Enkidu, for all of his great deeds, died a death unbefitting of a hero. Am I to meet the same fate? What purpose is there for the glories of Gilgamesh if my destiny is to just expire? Half mad! in a pool of my own sweat and waste. If the gods heard Gilgamesh's tragic musings, they did not send him a sign. He wandered the land alone, howling at the moon like a wolf, perhaps seeking to become an animal so that his worries could finally be left behind. Finally, at his moment of greatest despair, Gilgamesh found new resolve. I will not die in self-imposed exile. I will not die at all. My days in the wild have given me clarity, and I now know my mission. I must find Utanapishti, the forefather of all men, who survived the great flood and was rewarded by the gods with everlasting life. If I find him, perhaps he will tell me his secrets, and I can cast aside all my fears of death. Gilgamesh knelt in prayer to Sin, the moon god. Sin! In my slumber tonight, I beseech you to grant me a vision that might guide me to my goal. I want to fear no longer. I must live forever. Gilgamesh slept, 
but he had no dreams that could give him comfort. And when he awoke, he was surrounded by lions. Come, beasts! I may have fallen far from what I once was, but I am still the mightiest alive! Gilgamesh swung his axe with abandon, relishing the bloodlust that had laid dormant within him ever since Enkidu's death. The lions couldn't touch him. Each that lunged at him fell to his blade. Finally, the few surviving lions fled. Gilgamesh fashioned himself new clothes from the skins of the lions. He ate their flesh raw and sat among the ruined carcasses of the beasts. It was then that finally, the gods sent an envoy. Gilgamesh, it pains me to see you suffering so. Tell me, why have you set yourself on this futile mission? That which you seek, you will not find. Shamash, you are as wise and as powerful as always, but you are an immortal god, and you cannot know the restlessness of man. We are drawn to action because we know our time here is fleeting. But what if you fail? Will all this toil be worth it when you could be back in Uruk, leading your people and enjoying your comforts? If I fail, well, there will certainly be time for me to rest in the netherworld. Gilgamesh did not sleep again that night, and when the sun rose, he continued on his journey. He came to Mashu, the twin-headed mountain, where legend said there was a cave that hid the path to Uta Napishti. The trail that led into the mountain was blocked by a large gate, guarded by the scorpion man and his wife. Their heads and bodies were the flesh and blood of humans, but in the place of legs, they each had the armored, eight-legged thorax of scorpions, massive, poisonous stingers at the end of their tails. Who goes there? When Gilgamesh saw the monsters, he was frozen in fear. He could not answer. I know you. You are the one called Gilgamesh. Two-thirds god, one-third man. What brings you all this way, Gilgamesh? It is a long and dangerous path from Uruk. I... I am seeking the path to Utanapishti, who convened with the gods and learned the secret to eternal life. We will not deter you. But know that your quest may be in vain. There is a path through the mountain that will take you to Udanapishti. It will take you a full day to reach the end of the path, and the way is completely dark. No man has ever made the journey and survived. You said it yourself. I am only one-third of a man. The two-thirds of me that come from the gods will have to do. The scorpion monsters would not fight Gilgamesh and they knew they would not deter him, so they pushed open the gates and allowed Gilgamesh to pass into the darkness. Up next, we'll continue Gilgamesh's story. Now back to the story. Gilgamesh walked through the pitch-dark path. It was hot and stuffy, he could barely breathe, yet he pressed on. He stumbled in the darkness, blindly reaching out, trying desperately to feel the rocks around him so that he might know the way. But he felt no walls, and the path seemed so wide that at times he didn't even know which way was forward. All he could do was press on, until finally, at the 23rd hour, the wind picked up. 
the darkness abated, and before long, he could see light. Gilgamesh squinted as his eyes adjusted to the sunlight. He saw that he was in a beautiful garden next to a shining ocean. The locale was so serene that, for a moment, Gilgamesh thought he had died in the dark tunnel and ascended to the heavens themselves. Across the gardens, by the sea, Gilgamesh spotted a woman standing near a tavern. He approached her, but when she saw him, she grew fearful of his beastly appearance. She retreated into the tavern and barred the door. I am not going to hurt you. What is your name? I am Siduri and this is my tavern. You look like a vagrant and I'll, I'll not have you step foot inside. Be gone from here. I am no vagrant. I am Gilgamesh, the once king of Uruk. I am seeking a way to find Utanapishti, for he knows the secret to eternal life. Siduri was stunned by Gilgamesh's presence. She allowed him to enter the tavern, gave him water to bathe himself, and fed him food to recover his strength. After Gilgamesh had rested, she told him the way to his destination. Utanapishti resides across the shimmering sea. No man has ever crossed it, as it is the path that Shamash himself takes to reach the far horizon. I was told the same about the dark tunnel that I passed through the get here. And yet here I stand. If I must cross the ocean to reach my goal, then so be it. Oh, you will have to face more than mere darkness, Gilgamesh. The seas are choppy, and many boats have sunk in its waves. Even if you cross the sea, you will face the waters of death, and only Urshanabi, Utanapishti's boatman, knows how to navigate those treacherous depths. Then I must find Urshanabi before I set out. He lives deep in the forest, but beware, for his house is guarded by giant snakes and the fearsome stone ones. You must not go there. Please, tell me the way. Siduri saw that she would not sway Gilgamesh, and so she pointed him to Urshanabi's house. Gilgamesh set off, but once he entered the forest, he was beset by the snakes and stone ones, hulking golems made of solid rock. It was as Siduri had warned him. Ha! What's one more battle? With his dagger and axe, Gilgamesh felled the stone ones and the snakes, killing every last one until the forest was quiet again. He soon reached Urshanabi's house. Who goes there? Sir, I stand before you as a man with nothing left. I beg you, show me the way to Utanapishti. You are a fool, Gilgamesh. Can you not see that in questing for immortality, you deny yourself the joys of life? Call my mission folly, if you will. You will not deter me. Well, it won't be easy. You killed all my snakes and stone ones. They attacked me. I had to defend myself. They were my guides. When I travel through the waters of death on my ferry, it is my deathless stone ones who push me through, for they are not flesh and thus immune to the water's curses. If they were deathless before, they certainly aren't now. What are we to do? You must go into the forest, cut down three hundred trees no shorter than ninety feet in length, trim them into poles and lash them. 
Then we shall take them to my boat and see if we can make the journey. Gilgamesh did as instructed, and when all was done, the two men carried the boat out of the forest to the shore and set sail. Gilgamesh rowed as hard as he could. His godly strength propelled the boat forward with great speed. Within three days, they had traveled a distance that would have taken a normal crew three months to cover. We have arrived at the waters of death. There is no wind here to move our sail. We must use the poles to keep going. Urshanabi instructed Gilgamesh on how to proceed. With the poles he had cut down, Gilgamesh began to prod the boat along. He took each pole and thrust it into the water, pressing it against the bottom of the ocean to propel the boat forward. But every time he thrust a pole into the water, the pole snapped. Gilgamesh was so strong that he couldn't help but break every single pole as soon as it hit the ocean floor. Gilgamesh pushed until every pole was broken, and finally, they escaped the waters of death. A light breeze lifted Gilgamesh's hair, and desperate, adrift, Gilgamesh pulled the lion skin from his back and held it aloft as a sail. After many agonizing hours, they finally arrived on an island where an old man waited. Gilgamesh greeted him. You must be Utanapishti. I am, and you are Gilgamesh. You have come here on a fool's errand. Fool or not, I beg you. How did you convince the gods to grant you eternal life? I convinced them to do nothing. Many hundreds of years ago, by pure chance, I overheard the god Enlil plotting to send a great flood down to Earth as a punishment for mankind. I lied to my neighbors and told them I was hated by the gods and was building a boat to seal myself inside. They were all too happy to help me, and they set me and my wife off along the river as the first drops of rain were falling. The gods watched as the flood covered the Earth, drowning all of mankind. When the flood ended, the gods were starving, as there were no people left to give them sacrifices. When my wife and I emerged safe, we made a sacrifice and the gods came to us. Enlil wanted us dead, but the gods shielded us, for he had summoned the flood without consulting them. They made us immortal, as a reward for saving the human race. What must I do to earn the gift you have been given? First, you must pass a test. I am Gilgamesh, mightiest there is. What is your test? Avoid sleep. Stay awake for one whole week. So Gilgamesh sat alone on the island. The first day passed with his head drooping, his eyes struggling to stay awake. By the second day, he was fast asleep. When he awoke from his slumber, he found Uta Napishti standing over him. It seems I failed your challenge. You did not fail. No man can escape sleep, and no man can escape death. Gilgamesh realized the truth in Utanapishti's words, and he realized, finally, that his quest for immortality had been in vain. He was doomed to die, as all men do. As Gilgamesh contended with the crushing sense of failure, Uta Napishti summoned Urshanabi. You, my boatman, must never return here. 
for I wish to never again see the agony of a mortal man. I understand, wise one. Urshanabi prepared the boat to leave as Gilgamesh stared at the calm and placid waters, coming to grips with his own mortality. Gilgamesh and Urshanabi sailed all the way back to Uruk, where Gilgamesh beheld the walls of the city he had constructed so long ago. Tis a glorious city, not a bad place to spend the rest of one's life. It is indeed. And so they finally returned to Uruk. Gilgamesh invited Urshanabi to stay in the city, as he had no place to go now that his duty as a boatman had been relieved. Urshanabi accepted the offer, and that night Gilgamesh showed him the wonders of Uruk. Together they basked in the marvels of the city. Together they basked in the marvels of life. The Epic of Gilgamesh is generally considered to be the genesis of all written fiction. It remains the earliest known documented work of great literature, and seems to have set the template both for early written works carved onto tablets and the storytelling tropes that would come to define many epics of the following centuries. Gilgamesh's mission to immortalize himself, both in accomplishing great deeds and by finding the key to eternal life, is reflected in Homer's Iliad, particularly in the story of Achilles. Gilgamesh's long, dark journey across the waters of death and back is also evocative of Homer's Odyssey. Perhaps the most interesting and most controversial element in the Gilgamesh mythos is Uta Napishti's story about the great flood that nearly wiped out mankind. The story bears similarity to the tale of Noah's Ark and the Great Flood, told in the book of Genesis of the Old Testament, featured in both the Hebrew Torah and Christian Bible. Religious historians have long rejected the idea that the Bible's flood story is lifted from Gilgamesh. However, many ancient nations and mythologies have flood narratives, and it's more likely that these, including the tale of Noah, are inspired by the same cataclysmic event. Despite its age, the study of Gilgamesh as a literary artifact didn't begin until 1872, when the tablets were first rediscovered in the modern time. Following World War II, Gilgamesh saw a resurgence of cultural interest, particularly since the debut of the 1955 opera Epic of Gilgamesh, by Bohuslav Martinu. Since then, references to Gilgamesh have persisted in novels, films, television, and video games. He's the world's oldest literary hero, and as such, his influence stands over all the heroes of myth and fiction that have followed him. Thanks again for tuning in to Mythology. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Mythology, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram, at ParCast, and Twitter, at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. 
Mythology is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, and Maggie Admire. This episode of Mythology was written by Colin McLaughlin and produced by Freddie Beckley and Carly Madden. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Mike Capozzi, Kimberly Holland, Harris Markson, Alastair Murden, Samia Mounts, Cameron Nikad, Steve Pinto, and Laith Walshlager. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 